Hello and welcome to Beyond Beckdale, the podcast about film and feminism. I'm your host, Contrera. This is part three of our Fincher series, uh, where we look at the films of David Fincher and decide whether he is the world's greatest film feminist. And I think in the last episode we decided, my co-host for this pod, Nick, that... What, it probably isn't? Yeah. I think so too. Um, We are going to divide this podcast into two sections. The first section is about Gone Girl, which was Fincher's film made in 2014. And the later section is going to be about his very, very recently released on Netflix film, Mank. Okay, scratch that. Before we go any further, I have listened back to the podcast while I'm editing it, and I've realised I need to change a few things. So firstly... This episode is not going to include anything about Gone Girl when it should, because that's the next film and my favourite film in the David Fincher canon. Um, please go back and listen to the other episodes of David Fincher to hear all our thoughts on those. And I will bring the Gone Girl episode later where we can fully concentrate on it. Two other things about Mank. It's very important to know that this is a complicated film where our review goes deep diving into Citizen Kane as well as Mank in order to make it make sense. Um, Hopefully that should be fine because if you haven't seen Citizen Kane there might be a couple of things where you don't quite understand. Um, Please shout if um, there's anything that isn't clear. Um, And thirdly there are a couple of things that I've since found out from other people opinions on Mank that we did not reference at all because neither Nick nor myself thought about them. The first one I really annoyed with myself because it should be exactly in my wheelhouse which is the age of women and ageing in cinema. There was a great tweet yesterday where a woman whose name I've forgotten highlighted the difference in ages of the actresses who played prominent characters in Mank versus their real life counterparts because they're based on real people and for example Tuppence Middleton who plays Sarah Mankiewicz, Mank's wife, uh, is 33 years old and the character would have been 42 and the woman in the tweet made a really important point about the erasure of older women and I'm not quite as bothered by this because Gary Oldman is playing a character and he's 20 years too old for um, and also at least these actresses are in their 30s which seems to be better than when they're in their 20s but I didn't realise this and I think it's worth making the point that um, Hollywood's happy to cast a man who's 20 years too old for a part but won't cast a woman of the right age of a real life character. Secondly um, there's quite a lot of erasure of Jewish actors a lot of the characters in Mank especially considering that the character names are things like Mankiewicz are played by non-Jewish actors and there probably should have been more actors who are Jewish playing these Jewish characters and I wanted to acknowledge that. Anyway, thanks for listening to this. Please enjoy the rest of the episode. Anybody seen anything good lately? I just saw 42nd Street. It blew my wig. You can take the girl out of bed stuff. When was that? Over the weekend, you were in DC. I went to the pictures in Santa Barbara. Finally, after all this time since we started this podcast series and effectively six years since the last product from David Fincher, we've finally arrived at Mank. Did you like Mank? I did like it, yeah. Um, I I liked it on subject matter more than than anything else. Um, It's not actually like any other David Fincher film that I can think of. But um, I think if you have any kind of interest in sort of film history, 
specific kinds of film history, uh, then uh, you probably will like it. I, I think if you don't, at the same time, you might struggle a bit with it. If you don't like, uh, if you don't understand the film history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or maybe not struggle, but probably won't be as engaged. It probably won't strike you as much. It's not the easiest thing in the world to, to, to follow, I think. I was also pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it. I will now attempt to summarise, just because I think, especially for anyone who hasn't seen Mank, as you just said, it was mm. quite confusing. This is how I see it. Please interrupt if I've missed anything. Mank is about a screenwriter called Herman J. Mankiewicz, who wrote the script for Citizen Kane, and whether he did that on his own or not is up for debate in this film, and it flits between two-ish timelines within a period of time between the early 1930s and the early 1940s, and in one section, the earlier section, Mank hangs around with... William Randolph Hearst, the billionaire or whatever he is, newspaper magnate, who is essentially the inspiration for Citizen Kane and his girlfriend, I think, um, Marion Davis and various other players in old school studio system Hollywood on the lots. And in the other narrative, he is writing the screenplay based on the events when he's holed up in some weird northern Californian ranch on his own with a coterie of women helping him to convalesce after a car accident where he was in a kind of uh, like full body cast from the waist down and it goes back and forth showing his writing process and what he was going through and the inspiration for Citizen Kane but it does it with a lot more wit and drama than I just used in my summary <laughs> is that correct yeah yeah no missing anything no that, that's that's basically um basically the size of it it's it, it's just about the yeah as you say the inspiration and the writing of Citizen Kane from from Mankiewicz yeah I'll now try and give a little bit of background from my research and general consensus around Mank, which is in 1971, Pauline Kael, the famous film critic, wrote a 50,000 word essay stating that Orson Welles wasn't really a co-screenwriter on Citizen Kane, and in fact it was Mankiewicz's whole script and and wasn't really tempered much and so therefore obviously with 50,000 words she said a lot more but um Mm -hmm. uh essentially that um Wells didn't deserve the screenwriting co-credit and the screenwriting Oscar was the only Oscar that Citizen Kane won Citizen Kane being apparently the greatest film ever made and I'll get to that a bit um and then a later piece, who I've forgotten who it was written. Was it written by Peter Bogdanovich? I don't know. Someone came up and said, Pauline Kell, you're wrong. A little bit later. Uh, the film is the culmination of screenwriting changes by Wells. And therefore, mm. he did deserve to have 
his screenwriting credit. Meanwhile, Jack Fincher, David Fincher's dad, who was a film critic and journalist, wrote a script on this many years ago. I think it was the 90s. And David Fincher has been trying to make this film since the 90s. And I found out from another podcast um, recently that Jodie Foster and Kevin Spacey were originally tapped to play, I presume, Marion Davis and Mank, because I don't know what that script looked like. Um, And that didn't happen. And then I'm guessing David Fincher himself has been working on this script because his dad, I think, died in 2003. And this film is an ode to his father, Jack Fincher, and his screenwriting ability. Which I think is interesting because there's a lot of things here about fathers and sons and doubling and does this character represent this person and etc, etc. I think that's everything in the Mm -hmm. history. And I suppose also what we'll get to is that we just watched rewatch citizen kane yeah in order to better understand both the cinematographic and plot details of mank because it is an homage to citizen kane as well as all the other yeah things it is i've spoken for quite a long time now please oh, say, please say well something done. about mank yeah it does do, it i think the first thing i would say about it is it does it, it it it's sourced from a sort of principle that you have to kind of believe everything that's going on on screen, or at least I, th- I think you are invited to because you're watching it on film, uh, and and therefore much of what happens, you know, scene after scene after scene is is deemed to be inspiration behind Citizen Kane. Um, you mean even though there's so you're saying there's a dual plot there's a plot of this is what may have happened and how mank made the screenplay but also in the style and in the same sequence of events as are on i I think i think what he's it's very meta i mean i think what he's doing i mean the screenplay itself is what it's saying is um mank did write the screenplay uh, or he's predominantly wrote it um and um Here's all the inspiration behind it. I mean, Hearst is, was, has been known to be an inspiration behind it for decades and decades, ever since the film was released. So that, that, that wasn't really... Well, it's pretty easy um, as well, because there aren't many other people it could yeah, be. Yeah. So. Um, and then various other people that sit, sit in that circle, I, I think, deemed to be the inspiration of certain other characters and various things and, and scenes and events that there, there is... Um, uh, there is some real-life corresponding event which causes that scene to occur in, then, in Citizen Kane. Um, Should we try and list some? Well, yeah, there's just, I, I mean, from a, from a character perspective, yeah. obviously you've got um, uh, William Randolph Hearst as Citizen Kane. That's that's well documented over decades and decades and decades. No problem. Um, there are some that I had no idea about, which m- may not be news to some people, but were, but were news to me. Like the idea that uh, Louis B. Mayer, I think, is supposed to be... Should I not say this? No, 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 carry um, on. I'm uh, just saying, for people who haven't watched the film, mm. if they have, they probably understand what we're talking about. But I think we need to illustrate how Louis B. Mayer is in Mank. See, this is where this whole podcast gets meta, yeah. right? Because we have, we, we're we reviewing a film that's about another film, mm. and we've just watched both those yeah. films. Yeah. So I think we should... Well, well, oh, oh, sorry, this is my fault, because I said to you, give me some examples. What I actually meant was examples in Mank mm. that were from Citizen Kane, right. not inspirations in Mank that featured in Citizen Kane. Right. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one. 
Basically, Mank tells a different story about the making or the writing of the screenplay mm. for Citizen Kane. Yeah. Than yeah. what we traditionally know. But Citizen Kane in itself is a fictional tale mm. and Mank is a fictional yeah. tale. Mm. Both about real people. Yeah. But with Mank, we are the way David Fincher makes the film, we are to believe that this really happened. This yeah. is this is a this is a um uh like a, a celluloid telling of a story not yeah. quite a documentary yeah i think what you've got what what happens here and it's it, it does happen from time to time in film it's not wholly uncommon is you take a factual event in history the making of citizen kane and then you invent a backstory behind it some of which might well be true and some of which might well not be true um i i don't know when you watch the film you're obviously invited to believe it as truth, but whether you really should be treating it is entirely true. I don't doubt some of it did happen in exactly the way that's being described, but I also think some of it has been fictionalised as well. I think so too. But also because of this essay by Pauline Kale, because of the years and years of historical knowledge, mm. what we thought was truth, that's built up behind Dawson Wells as this, like, as people keep saying, Wunderkind... Um, and what he did when he was 25 in making this film. I get the idea that David Fincher is somehow trying to redress a balance, or Jack Fincher was. The screenplay was supposed to give Mank, the person, back some dignity and ownership of his own story. Yeah. More than what everyone knows now like yeah. you know people who were born in the 2000s even people like us born before that know citizen kane orson wells mm. nobody was saying casually off the top, top of their head oh yes that screenplay written by yeah probably, he'd, probably, he'd probably be down actually in your list of of, of names um he might be fourth or fifth but i think yeah wells would be ahead of him and only if you're looking on wikipedia for who won the oscar yeah because the impression I get from reading up on Mank the person, again, um, is that he was very successful, but that his name was often not on things, or he was a script doctor, mm. and he went up and down in terms of his salary and his fame. He was very rich at one point, he used to gamble a lot, there's all of this. It's People know his brother, so we can talk about Joseph mm. Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz. I should say, I think they say Mankiewicz, don't they, in... Mm the film but I want to say Witz because I've just been torn to ha taught to have a German um, yeah. pronunciation thing but I'm going to say how they say it in the film Mankiewicz um, Joseph Mankiewicz who is a who in himself became an incredibly famous director notably for All About Eve which I think won did it win more Oscars mm. than any other film have um, I made that up or nominated it was heavily nominated yeah. it did win uh, Best Films yeah. as well um, so I think maybe we should go a little bit more into the plot because I think my summary doesn't give enough of the feeling of watching Mank. Mm. Because I would say that Mank is about relationships that Mank, the character, has with all these various parties, some of which we know as famous people, back to your point, Louis B. Mm. Mayer, um, or people who were depicted in Citizen Kane 
as a fictionalised version, but actually the real person, i.e. Marion Davis, mm. William Randolph Hearst's girlfriend and um, kind of show girl star who moved from silent movies to talkies during this period. Um, she is depicted on screen in the film as the real person, whereas in Citizen Kane, her avatar is Susan Alexander. Yeah. Although Mank makes the distinction that... Mank the, I'm going to have to like, maybe call him Mank, Mankiewicz the person and Mank the film, because it gets confusing between the two. But in Mank the film, um, she is portrayed as savvy, interesting, has a lot to say. Mm. Whereas her avatar in Citizen yeah. Kane, not so much. Not quite as bad as people say, having just watched Citizen Kane. Yeah. Um, Shall we maybe list a few more other people who are in Mank? So, um, during his convalescence period of the film, he is looked after by a woman, I think, called Rita Alexander, who's played by Lily Collins. Right, yeah. Who is a, I don't know, English... Yeah. uh, Typist? I don't know, don't really know what her actual job is. She types up his notes. Uh, What's the word when someone... uh, I don't know. uh, There's a name, there's a profession there, that when you type what's... like copy typist something okay but yeah that's what she does yeah so that's what she does but she's also there to keep him on the straight and narrow yeah because mank is basically an alcoholic yeah yes uh and he also has a nurse whose name i've completely forgotten which says it all about (laughs) films with uh made by david fincher it's harder to remember the female characters so a german nurse who looks after him then there's a guy whose surname is houseman who is his I don't know, agent? Uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah some kind of pro- producer type person. Yeah. Because Orson Welles calls Mank at some point, either at the very beginning of the movie or off screen before the movie starts, saying, I've got loads of money. I can make anything I want. I want you to write something. Mm. You never see the conversation where they say, How about I do a biography of Hearst? Mm. And I don't know if that conversation ever happened uh i'm not sure it did either um tell you the truth i'm not really sure well hmm. yeah Pr- presumably i mean I, d- I can't see orson wells just just sort of saying go go away and invent something i'm sure they had an idea but they don't david fincher doesn't portray that and then at one point rita is reading through the notes and she says well i think everyone's going to work out who this is yeah which I thought maybe insinuated that he was just coming up with a good idea and just wanted to do this mm. and waited to see what people thought. And she worked it out, and the idea being that she was a British person? I don't know, because Hearst was American, right? He was, but he was an incredibly powerful newspaper. So he's like a world, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that, and then so that's on the side of what is effectively the present day in Manc, which is in the early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. And then the 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 back, what the one in the early 30s, is about um, Manc accidentally bumping into Marion Davis and kind of becoming yeah. her acquaintance because a guy that he works with uh, is uh, writing is, a, is her nephew. Mm. And then also there are, in that section... Well, well, are we talking um, how well, Louis B. Mayer? Are we talking about Louis B. Mayer? Yeah. So, do you know? Can you say a little bit about the MGM setup? In so the, in Manc, so the people, the the important parties. Well, it's it's 
Well, it, well it's really Louis B. Mayer, isn't it? And uh, Irving Thalberg was quite a notable um, exec producer at the time, who died quite early in his life and has since become something, something of legend. I think it's a building named after, named after him, actually, it's somewhere in Hollywood. Um, um, and, and these are the, the power brokers of Hollywood. Um, Louis B. Mayer was one of the... Um, well, he was the founder of Mayer Pictures, wasn't he? That, uh, that eventually becomes MGM. Yeah, merged with um, Samuel Goldwyn's company at Metro Studios. Um, um, so he's the head of MGM, in effect. Um, but in terms of where he sits in the hierarchy um, of the, at least the film, yeah. it's under Hearst. So exactly where Hearst fits into this is debatable because you, you, would, you would have thought, or I would have thought, that Mayer wasn't really answerable to anybody there. But the insinuation on the part of the film is that he sits just under Hearst, or Hearst's right-hand man almost. Yeah, or they definitely have a relationship. He's almost a lackey, seen as a yeah. lackey in parts. And yeah. then in other parts of the film, he's seen as very much in charge of his studio. Yeah. But later on in the film, um, we should probably say that uh, they'll kind of be spoilers. To be honest, anything we say in this film, mm. I don't think it would stop anyone's enjoyment mm. because it's complicated. Yeah. I didn't even understand half of it when I watched it. It's only like kind of afterwards. It's definitely a film that should be watched twice, which I think most film fans and Fincher fans are kind of used to mm-hmm. anyway. But there is a part in the film later where Mayer admits that Hurst was kind of bankrolling yeah. Yeah. Um, Manx's salary. Do you know anything about the Algonquin group? I do not. So at the beginning of Mank, what we're doing is at the moment, for the purposes of this podcast, is quite dry. And I apologise to the viewers because that's not what Mank's like. It, like I said, it is dense, but it's fun and witty, whereas we're trying to analyse it and it becomes kind of clinical and mm. scientific. A great scene towards the beginning of Mank is where... Mank is sitting in a room with about five other guys and they are all, I think, salaried scriptwriters and, you know, producers, what have you, at, whether it's MJ or Mayer's yeah. current studio, coming up with ideas for films. And they have some really nice kind of My, My Girl Friday snappy dialogue scenes where they... Um, kind of on the fly come up with scripts and I think they'll come up with plot ideas and they're pitching to David O. Selznick who I believe to be a very famous producer Um, yeah one of the most famous well I know his name and then I'm like do I actually know what he does I think Mm. he produces things so they they go to this pitch meeting and it's this really cool quippy everybody in the scene says one part of the story and then they come up with the plot too is it the Wolfman does that become an actual film yeah but not for a sales Nick it was a universal picture no but I wonder if it was that group that did pitch that to somebody else oh maybe maybe so I don't know much about it but the Algonquin group is basically like a lunch club or supper club for writers Mm. in Hollywood who would all come and get drunk and eat and share ideas. And it was kind of a little bit of an exclusive thing if you'd written something or you wanted to. But there were also people like Dorothy Parker who were part of it. Mm. So um, there's definitely... That aspect is at the beginning of the film. And again, Fincher assumes that the viewer knows all of this. And I'm like, I don't really know this. So I had to look it up. Mm. So you have these groups of people pitching and there's very much in Mank a sense of this is what the studio system was like. It's Mm. a system. There are only a few people at the top making their decisions and they are ruthless. Mm. But also 
Fincher is wanting to make something entertaining for the audience where he puts it in this like walk and talk there are walk and talks there are funny moments there are sight gags and there's also this drama unfolding yeah indeed would you agree yes i would what do you think about the another part of the film which is the political setup can you talk maybe about that um as in what upton sinclair upton sinclair well, there, there, well, the, the, there is the concept of elections going on, and 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 ideas about communism and versus, um, you know, uh, I don't know, some kind of, sort of nationalism, I suppose. Um, so we should say, obviously, it's set in the thirties, yeah. which coincidentally mm. is the era in time where Hitler came yeah. to power. But that doesn't mean necessarily that communism was any any more popular than Hitler. In fact, it was probably loathed even more. I'm, I'm not saying that. Hitler was embraced by any stretch of the imagination. He was not because he was anti-Semitic, which was a. And in Mank, the this background about the dangerous encroachment of communism, mm. or perhaps Hitler's way of doing things. Although he wasn't, it wasn't. There's a brief scene where they they are they do kind of mention the gas chamber, but everyone kind of dismisses it as this couldn't possibly be happening. But very much, I feel like Mank is about. The character Mank is actually wanting to overhaul the studio system and he realises how unfair it is and how capitalist it is becoming Mm. and that he gets quite um, enraptured by Upton Sinclair, this gubernatorial candidate for the... LA and LA governorship who is definitely more liberal democratic mm. and at the same time the studio that he works for and this is before he's writing the screenplay to Citizen Kane is making propaganda films for the um, Republican mm-hmm. candidate yeah. so there's a whole section of this film which I think Fincher is talking about Donald Trump. He is making an allusion to the encroachment of dictatorship, authoritarianism, or something like that, because both this is happening at a governor level, and also you learn that Hearst used to be a lot more liberal when he was younger, and then gets into the newspaper business, becomes world domination and hugely rich, and then starts to move yeah. Right. Did I get that right yeah. from no, the yeah, film? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the point that Fincher is trying to make about Hearst, Mayer, the studio system, and then how that feeds into the writing of Citizen Kane. Because Orson Welles' portrayal of Kane is as of, of a similar person, a person who seems to have started out a lot more liberal and of the people, and then gradually is eroded by. Mm the millions and I don't know he doesn't really want the freedom of the press he's got a giant ego yeah um, it's an oldish kind of tale isn't it where you you, you start off um, slightly idealistic and then as you um, acquire it's not even acquiring money it's just more as you age you tend to drift more and more to the right and it becomes more about control the, the, the older you get that's something that um, that's something that happens quite a lot to, to Hurston. Well, well, here's the thing. I mean, 
does it really happen to Hurst in Mag? There's not a lot of there's not a lot of insinuation that Hurst is any different in the early 1930s or late 20s or whatever to to how he is just before Citizen Kane is released. Um, He's very old then, though. Yeah, but I the, thought he knew something about his past. Um, I, I think He's it's like a, in his 80s I think or it's something, a nice then. plot device to introduce in Citizen Kane where you can show the entire life. But the thing is, if you in Mank, if you're not going to show the entire... or Hearst's transition from liberal to right-wing or whatever it is, then as an audience member, you, you, you're just led to believe... or, or, you're, you're, or you're shown as a man that's um, very, very powerful. And that's it. Yeah, so let's talk about the characterisation then. So Hearst is played by Charles Dance in this film. And Louis B. Mayer is is played by an actor called Alice Howard. And then we have Marion Davis is played by Amanda Seyfried. And we also have um, Lily Collins we talked about as the, we can't think mm-hmm. of the name, typist. Yeah. Assistant. And um, uh, Tuppence Middleton, love her name, plays uh, the character known as Poor Sarah, um, who is Manx's wife. Yeah. Did you like yeah. that? And also, uh, Gary Oldman, we should say, plays Mank. The most important yeah, thing most is important. he's in practically every scene. Um, this is this is a film, it's called Mank for a reason. This is a film entirely about one man. Yeah, I agree. Exhaustingly yeah. so. Mm, it is. Yeah. What did you think of the of. characters? Um, well, I, I this is where I think, if, you, if you've watched Susan Kane a lot... Um, which I have, um, you're invited as a viewer to... Now, I, 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 I conversely, by the way, before I make this statement, conversely, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, then this probably isn't going to make any sense. You're probably not going to be aware of what you're watching, at least you won't draw any lines. But if you have watched it, you're going to start to see people represented in the film Mank uh, being representative of, of the characters in Citizen Kane. And the idea clearly is there, as Fincher is suggesting, ah, oh, this guy is... You know, it's supposed to be Bernstein. This guy's supposed to be Leyland, and this guy, and this person's supposed to be Susan, and so on and so forth. And I think some of those lines are quite clear and obvious, and and you you can draw them. And other ones probably less so. So, in an even more meta fashion, you're saying that David Fincher is rewriting the past because he is suggesting when you do what we did, which was watch Citizen Kane after watching Mank, yeah. you start to see real life people as fictionally portrayed in Mank in fictional characters in Citizen Kane. Which I think was the intention. Yeah. Um, but we don't know if that's what happened. It could be utterly made up. I mean, yeah. it may have nothing to do with anything. That is just, I think that's just Fincher hmm. imprinting real-world people onto the character behind Citizen Kane, some of which are true, we know to be true, like like Hearst, um, and other ones maybe not so much. I don't know. Hmm. What did you think of Amanda Seyfried? Um, who does she play? As Marion. As Marion. <laughs> Just the most important female character in the film. Well, Welcome to Beyond Vector. Well, um, oh, okay, so are we are we starting out on the premise that she is Susan from Citizen Kane? No, because in Mank, Mank says you're not her. Yes, but it's an obvious, obvious line All to right. draw. If it, we're going to have it, an it, IQ test I mean, about you could this. also say that, that Mank yeah. might have said, but um, it's not based on that Kane isn't Hurst, but quite clearly he is. Um, and it's obvious as but well. But I think that's the point that Mank makes in the film. Mm. Mank, the character, is a screenwriter and he wants to make a good script. And in a script, you have to sometimes play with the truth mm. because 
sometimes the truth is more or less interesting or doesn't flow quite as well as mm. you need a film to be. Mm. Which brings me to um, a quick aside, which is in Citizen Kane, Orson Welles wanted people to talk like people talked, which is over one another. Yeah. And it kind of grated on me all throughout the film. And I think it's quite amusing because I, as a child of the future, <laughs> what wants to now see films where... Because I know it's scripted, people won't talk over each other unless it's definite. Yeah. Whereas, I'm sure it was definite the way Wells made it, but I don't think if Orson Wells made that film today, he would make it in the same way. He also did this thing, because I'm guessing he didn't have ADR, um, which is when you, when you can... Um, overlay voice that you do in the studio afterwards because he kept saying hello and now we're going to announce everything in this film which Fincher does not do in Mank and which Orson Welles does in Citizen Kane which I found very annoying I think that Fincher made a lot of homage but he didn't do things in exactly the same way which is my roundabout way of getting back to Marion Davis it's a really important part of this film particularly for me in this podcast is that I believe up until me watching Mank, Marion Davis, the real life person who was the girlfriend of the real life William Randolph Hearst, was portrayed by the screenplay for Citizen Kane to be a character called Susan Alexander. Yes. And the character Susan Alexander is told all the way through Citizen Kane that she can't sing, and she can, it's ridiculous, and is kind of seen as a bit simple, a bit naive down on her luck from the wrong side of the streets all of those cliche and and towards the end of the film you know towards the end of her life in the film uh, chronologically a bit of a drunk yeah marion davis the character in mank is much more well-rounded much more interested much smarter and amanda seyfried does an amazing job playing her there's all sorts of depth and levels I thought she brought to it and she didn't come across as someone who was being trampled on by a rich older man mm-hmm. but someone who yeah fell in love with someone who looked after her and looked after his interests and also had her own ideas about what she wanted but wasn't necessarily coerced into doing things in the way that Susan Alexander and Citizen Kane is so I think what Mank is trying to do is redress the balance in relation to the legacy of the real Marion Davis. But I do believe yeah. that, that Susan Alexander was seen by the viewers of the time and the industry of the time as being Marion Davis because you couldn't help it because, well, because Hurst is well, so we'll closely aligned to Kane. Well, look at it this way, okay. If Hurst is Kane... Yes. She obviously is. But that's a much more direct comparison. It is. But how badly is... Hurst portrayed in Mank. Is he a particularly... It's another point I want to bring um, up, yeah. I mean, actually, t- taking... For a start, he's not actually in it that much. We should no. say this. He really isn't in it that much, but you only get very, very limited glances, and the limited glances you get of him are as a pretty well-rounded person. Mm. He doesn't necessarily react badly to any conflicts he may have with Mank. The same is true of Marion, as you just said. She's actually presented as a far more rounded, smart person, and their relationship, Hurston and Marion, is actually, as far as the film is, as far as Mag is concerned, is portrayed in a much more solid, Even, founded way. Yes. 
you translate that into Citizen Kane with the, the you know the, the tyrannical newspaper tycoon stuck in alone in his mansion with who his, slaps her with, at yeah, one with point his, with yeah. his with his kind of slightly downtrodden uh, second wife you know doing jigsaws in, in with, with, next to a giant fireplace and it's yeah. you know that th- you could see that the insinuation of the film Mank is that that the writer Mankiewicz may have been if, if this indeed was the source if if, if that he was sort of inventing little bits as he was going along that actually the insinuation from Fincher is that a lot of the stuff that's in Citizen Kane may not have exactly been what what Bank was really experiencing. Yes, there's definitely, I wrote, like I was saying earlier, I wrote a screenplay Mm. based on people I know doesn't mean it's a fair and yes. honest representation yes. of those people. That, that's, that seems yeah. to be... Also, Orson Welles, we don't know how much Orson Welles changed. Well, that's what true, Manc that's wrote. true, that's true. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think the, the, the connection is obviously there. But the film itself, Mank, the film, <laughs> so suggests, I think Fincher suggests that yeah. a lot of, even if, um, Mank believed what he was putting in the screenplay for Citizen Kane was what he was seeing. The, 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 what Fincher seems to be saying is, yeah, but how much of that was down to alcohol and how much of that was him misseeing things and so on and so forth. In oh, is words, that how you saw it? In other words, the insinuation for me is that, yeah. do, do you know, at a very simplistic level, I, I actually think that it could even be argued that Mank was in love with Marion and that, and that warped his entire view of Hearst. But that's just the way I see it. Do you think that's how it came across in the film? I didn't I, get I, I that. Think, I think you can read it that way. Doesn't yeah. it? I don't think... I think you could watch no. it and not get that. Yeah. But I, I, I kept wondering that. I, there was this kind of semi-romantic relationship which was between the two of them, between Mank, which was never really evolved beyond anything other than them walking together This is where twice. you and I differ because... I think you you go towards the if a man and a woman a heterosexual man and woman are talking on screen for too long there is a potential that that is the director well, insinuation of romance but wait in Mank the film um, Sarah Paul Sarah Mank's wife yeah. has a very astute observation where she says I've put up with this I've put up with that yeah. I've put up with your silly platonic friendships yeah. and I thought that was Fincher saying like not necessarily that Mank falls in love with his subject, but that he ceases to be objective with Possibly, his subject, which is yeah. kind of what you're saying. Possibly, yeah. But the yeah, difference yeah. between you and me is that I didn't see in that film any sexual chemistry whatsoever well, between Mank and Marion. I just think they're yeah. fr- they saw the world in the same well, way. Well, there's definitely a connection. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a, a strong connection between yeah. the two of them. And, and, but it doesn't and, have and to lot, be anyone in love with and anyone. A, and, a, and a lot stronger than it was with Hurst. But, yes. but uh, the way I could see it is is Mank being, one, annoyed, perhaps, that he was married, j- j- due to the fact that, you know, due to the way he, he portrays his own wife and calling her Paul Sarah throughout and all this kind of stuff. Hmm. Two, well, that's what everyone two, else does. <laughs> two, that he thought, but without any real evidence, that Marion was being mistreated by Hearst, but again, without any real evidence of that. And three, that he really did love her. So all, all, all of this kind of morphs in a way into this non-reality which sort of becomes Citizen Kane or at least I think you can read it that way I don't think you have to but I think that the, the insinuation is see how Manx you know mind played tricks on him and this is how you end up with Citizen Kane I, I don't know that, that's one way of looking at it anyway yeah good evening Mankiewicz I'm sorry what... M-A-N-K-I-E-W-I-C and out of nowhere a Z I'd like to go back to a point 
you made earlier, which is about how Hearst isn't very much in the film. Mm. I think it's important to say to people who haven't seen the film yet how um, infrequently Hearst and particularly Wells mm. appear. Orson Wells is played by Tom Burke and he does an excellent, certainly uh, representation of his voice. Yeah, it's a very he does good. look like him. He does, and he's got yeah. the same height, he's got the same square face. Very good Wells voice, isn't so, it? Yeah. yeah. And, and the presence and what have you. He is literally in one scene at the beginning where he's on the other end of the phone, another scene in the middle when he's on the other end of the phone, and then a kind of... He gets to do something mm. in a scene at the end where he gets to kind of shout at Mank, which is about the credit for the screenplay. Um, Hurst is in the film quite a lot, but like you said, it's quite... It's quite interesting how remote a character he is. Fincher clearly wants people to have a distance from Hurst. And I think Fincher's saying, or Jack Fincher was saying in the screenplay, none of us ever really knew mm. who, Her- who Hurst is. Mm. We don't even know if Mank knew no. who Hurst is. I didn't get any impression whatsoever that... Mank taught me anything else about who William Randolph Hearst no. is. It was, in fact, no. I was surprised as to how distant a figure Fincher made him. It was almost as if Fincher's saying, David Fincher is saying, you've got a whole film made about him, mm. whether it's true or not. Let's talk about all the other people that Mank knew when he was writing mm. this screenplay. That guy's not important. If you want to know about that guy... Watch Citizen Kane. But if you want to know about Marion Davis, don't watch Susan Alexander in, yeah, in, yeah, in Citizen yeah, Kane. Yeah. Watch this film. If you want to know about Manx Wife, if you want to know about Rita Alexander, well, who by the way is called Rita Alexander, which I think yeah, is quite well, interesting. I also think, I mean, if we're going on that on screen times as well, I think if, if you're going to do a film about the writing of Citizen Kane that is centred on um, Herman Mankiewicz, then you're, you're probably wise to keep Hurst and Wells out of it as much as you can. Otherwise... Because those those are kind of audience grabbing names that, that people will actually sort of you know oh yeah awesome Wells yeah let's see a scene with him and then there's, there's a danger that they can they can take over the plot take over the film and it ceases to be about Mankiewicz so I think that was a dis- directorial decision to keep them in the background and limit their screen time well and also because the whole point of this is it's trying to rewrite a wrong apparently so do you know the American phrase what's your damage. Have you heard uh, no, I don't this? Think so, no. so basically, it's when I've heard a lot of people use it, where it's basically saying, "So what happened to you? What, uh, what are you I complaining see. about? Yes. What was the bad thing that happened yeah, to you?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I say in this film is, "Mank person, what exactly is your damage, Jack yeah. Fincher? What exactly is his damage, Manx, that you have to write a whole screenplay about this? Because Manx seems to have a great life. He hangs around with loads of people. He." consistently is told and tells himself that he's the greatest screenwriter that ever lived and he won an Oscar (laughs) for a screenplay so the only damage that Mank has is perhaps it should have been only his Oscar and not shared with Wells and and he has been to be fair he has been um, the subject of oversight because we didn't really know so much who he was but his damage in the film in the film Mank I'm like we get to the end of it and I'm like it's quite a nice ending. He gets an Oscar. Yes. I don't understand what, I think, what damage we're trying to I think, well, rectify. I, I think there is a um, an intrigue value. And I can see why you'd want to do it. Because I, 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 I dabble, dabble in the odd bit of sort of screenwriting, a little thinking of screenwriting anyway. And, and, and this particular concept is a very, very attractive. Let me quickly just say that I think you've um, 
really very well explained screenwriting, which was you said, I dabbled in thinking about screenwriting. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> commit to anything. I, I just, but you, th- I, you thought about thinking I, about it. I thought about it. thinking about it, but then thought better of it. Yeah, um, I interrupted you anyway. But Intrigue. I think if you, one of the things that you can do, one of the, an attractive um, proposition to a screenwriter, I think, is to take a piece of, of history, um, factual history, isolate the facts, and then... If the background to it isn't fully fully explored or fully well known, you sort of invent other things to fill in those gaps to yeah. create your own story. Um, and then, I mean, I'm dark, don't, don't mean to go off on one here, but have you ever seen the film The Damned United? Um, it's a, broadly it's about uh, Brian Clough's short reign at Leeds United. Mm. Now, although the facts of that are true, he was in charge at least for 44 days. The exact reason why it was only 44 days and not longer and everything else is something that um, David Peace, the screenwriter, fills in. Of course, anyone who was there immediately said, but that never happened. But that doesn't mean it's not an attractive prospect. And I think the same could be said here. Which is you, you, take a, you, you take a concept, um, the making of Citizen Kane, you know the sort of the people and the facts, um, and then the rest of it, you kind of fill in the reasons behind it. Um, is that not any biopic made as well? well Particularly I, if someone's well, died, I think, I think, so they're not around. Well, yes. Is this, is this um, like The Crown? For me, um, <laughs> I would say this yeah. is like the later series of The Crown, where people are saying this is what happened, yeah. and I'm like, I'm, uh, quick side on my side. Um, there are a lot of things that happen with Prince Andrew in yeah. season four of The Crown, where they're making out like everybody knew what a weird pervert yeah, he yeah, was yeah, 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 back in yeah, the 80s. Indeed, and it's indeed. like, no, everyone found out, I presume, yeah. perhaps even well, the Queen, yeah. more recently. Yeah, it's, so, revision, it's revisionist history. Yes. Uh, and, and, but it hasn't a, a sort of... Yeah, you're right. It, 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 I, think it, I think that's what screenwriters do um, a, a lot. But if you're doing something like a biopic, I think, I think you are duty-bound to a certain extent to try and stick to... What, what you know and, and not invent there's always a they bit, say that in the there's always a bit of creative in Mank there's always a bit of right, creative, what you know. <laughs> creative license that goes on always yeah. but but I think in this case you have a, a certain kind of film where you're taking vast creative license because exactly what really didn't didn't happen probably only known by very few people I doubt whether David Fincher knew I doubt whether Jack fin- Jack Fincher knew I doubt mm-hmm. whether Pauline Kael exactly knew it, it, it's kind of been sort of like morphed through history to a certain extent I'd like to have a quick, and they're not quick sides, I shouldn't say that because they're all related. Tangent, but semi-tangent. Pauline Kael is an interesting case here as an example of somebody who was seemingly revered or reviled for oh, what yeah, she did. Yeah. So when she wrote this essay, people were blown away by it because she's a pretty good writer. Mm. Um, and me as a person, Contrera, I actually like how Pauline Kael writes things and I don't actually like most of her reviews the ones I've read I don't Mm. know that much about her but that's quite hard for me to say because she is the most famous female film critic the world's ever had no she's the I'd say she's the single most famous film critic period yeah yeah, but that's the world shouldn't be like that mm. you know and even now she died a while ago she wasn't you know she hasn't been doing reviews and most of the time it seems that she was famous for being contrary. Oh yeah, definitely. That was her, her makeup. I mean, that, yeah. people read Pauline Kael reviews because they ran they ran contrary yeah. to other opinions. And she, it was like the, it, it's almost like, like the original hate read or hate watch or something. What 
she always strikes me, and I do not know that much about her, but she always struck me as someone who, like Maggie Thatcher, I'm obsessed with the crown, it seems, <laughs> like Maggie Thatcher, she was a woman in a man's world, mm. and therefore she stuck out by being brutal and taking on what yeah. are known as yeah, yeah. more male characteristics. You might be right about that. She yeah. would take mm. down people mm. and it marked her out and it leads you to mm. say she's the only famous female film critic there is. I will beg no, to differ. No, no, no I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying uh, what I said is she's not just the most famous female critic. Oh, the she, most famous she's critic. The most famous single critic. What about Roger Ebert? Uh, I, I, I think Pauline Kale is number one. She will yeah. always be if you make because your, of her hate takes. Well, she she just became you know it, she just became the voice of of yeah. the critic as it were. Yeah. Um, so the levels of metatextualness in a David Fincher film are, are at like the absolute pinnacle now. If you thought when we did our Tenet episode and we were talking about one timeline going forward and one timeline going backward, we were dealing with complexities. Mank is just level upon level because you've got some comments here about the destruction of Pauline Kael's counter-argument mm. on who wrote Citizen Kane, which might not have been right in the first time, which means she was taking down Orson Welles. Mm. And then you go back to the characterisation and you have all these different people who, if you look their names up, Louis B. You know, it's like a really famous person who looks like the person on screen. Mm. And Arliss Howard, I think I've, I've put on Twitter that um, I thought he might be Oscar nominated because I think he's really good. Like Gary Oldman is a standout, but the man's won Oscars. You know, yeah. so has he won more than one Oscar? He definitely won for um, being Winston Churchill. Yeah, and uh, the Dark Star. So yeah. has he won another one? I feel like he has. Don't know if he has but or yeah. certainly been nominated. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, absolutely love, could talk about her all day. Lily Collins, it was quite funny. I, I hear people saying that she has range because she was in Stupid Emily in Paris and she was in this. And I'm like, she was in a lot more stuff before this. It kind of upsets me that people are only getting to Lily Collins now because she's a really good actress. But the point of Emily in Paris is it's fluff and the point of Mank is, is the absolute opposite because David Fincher will not accept fluff. There has mm. to be levels with everything. Um, and I thought the accents were very good as well. Like you were talking about Wells's voice, but now I really have gone off, off subject. So we were talking about fact versus fiction and how important it is yeah. in a movie. Yeah. D- does it matter? No, I don't think so. I think if you've got a, um, a situation that is of historical interest and you don't really know what what happens you've got varying accounts i think you you, you have creative license to, to to invent that i think you, you can expect pushback to anybody who was who's still alive that was you know involved in it at the time saying that's all rubbish and oftentimes that's what you get in these situations but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to do it i just think um that as an audience watcher you, you just have to be aware that what you're what, what you're what you're viewing is a work of fiction probably there's some truth in it but probably there's also a lot of untruth in it as well yeah i agree i would like to move on now to the more theatrical and um technical aspects of mank so the set pieces the way it's shot in black and white yeah the the use of homage the use of filming techniques yeah. so i thought mo- firstly we could talk about the 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 fact that the film is made up of these numerous set pieces um because i really enjoyed that for example the scene i mentioned earlier with the um pitching 
to Selznick. That yeah. was all very much fast talking, what have you, like some of the talkies in those days. And then you also have um, the, one of my favourite scenes, which was the dinner party scene, which is when in the past, Mank is sat in Hearst's uh, castle, which is called San Simeon, which I think is to do with monkeys. Monkeys is a theme through Mank as well. Probably <laughs> need to talk about apes and monkeys and whatnot. Um, so they're all sit- there's a whole lot of people sitting in which is like a drinking lounge yeah everybody is sat down i'd I'd say there's probably 15 people maybe more in the scene and it's this really i mean it's quite a long scene as well i'd say for the film because i think the film's quite snappy um it's quite a long scene where everyone is having a discussion and it's a very important scene setting for what hitler's doing because hearst had been in germany i think and had been in europe and then come back and he's telling everybody about what's going on in europe yeah um and mayor is in the scene i think um Thalberg's in the scene scene. as well. There's the the funniest bit for me, funny and heartbreaking, is Mank is given two cocktails, one for his wife, who is sat next to him, and you see him very quickly take both of them. She like rolls her eyes and he puts both of them on his side and has two drinks (laughs) all after it. And I'm like, what a bastard. But that says it all about what she's like. I think that was a distillation of what her character is and what his character is. Um, But also Marion Davis is kind of holding court the way they um, put her in light coloured costumes all the way through I think is amazing because she has this um, Jean Harlow white blonde hair and these and you know she looks gorgeous she's got these really ridiculous fake long eyelashes and then she's always dressed in some kind of white outfit which I think is basically the outfit of the rich and famous because who else can get away with wearing something that's white but it's particularly um, what do you call it a chiaroscuro which is the the um, difference between com- comparison on screen and in paintings yeah. between black and white. Yeah. And I think what, what Fincher has done here is really made Marion stand out in all of these scenes because yeah. she's in white. But also she's in the centre of the scene and she's talking about politics and things she's heard. And she's making some quite smart comments like everybody is. There's some repartee between Hearst, who seems to be taking a more right-wing, we'll-do-it-my-way approach to government and Hollywood and then Mank who is telling it like it is from a liberal perspective yeah would you agree yeah um what did you think of that scene did it stand out to you yeah it's a funny scene really because it it it's it smacks of unrealism it's Um, very unreal um but at the same time I was not hanging around in Hearst's mansion in the 30s and for all I know he had he genuinely had parties like that I'm sure he did um, it's it's more the, the what, what strikes you about it immediately is the size of the room the number of people in it st- uh, all sat or stood at great distance from each other almost like a semicircle of audience uh, around the main around the main protagonists and they are just stating their mind and then everyone's talking one after the other. It's not like a party where you've got people, you know, a couple of people having a conversation in the corner. Or it's just like everyone, all 50 people in this room are going to have a conversation and we're all going to talk one at a time. And I thought, wow, I have never been to a gathering that really sort of panned out like that. But... Well, I think having now watched Citizen Kane, it is a slap in the face to Wells. I think Fincher is, because as I said earlier, Wells likes people talking over each other, which is more yeah, realistic. Yeah, but Wells point. does it 
far too much. It's a really good point, though, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Fincher is always a bit more static and at a distance. But, I, I know, you know, you know, he's famous for getting everyone, he's one of the directors mm. who gets everyone to take 90 takes or what have yeah. you. I got the impression that he really wanted everyone to be like, say your piece, say your piece, say your piece. So it is like a play, yeah. and it does have a feeling of unreality, but yet it, it's it's like calming to watch it's kind mm. of nice because you focus on each person you listen to what they say and what they're saying is quite complicated stuff about politics versus the movie yeah, yeah. and also it establishes that hierarchy exactly what you were talking about with Hurst in the middle and then Marion with two girls on either side but in her white outfit and then Manx slightly to the side but they are the kind of the triumvirate mm. aren't they of the conversation um, and everyone, everyone else in kind of like pretty but darker clothes on the outside. Yeah. I just loved that scene, even though I know it's a film scene. But that's part of what Mank is doing. It is not even pastiching. It's it, like I said, it's an homage. I'm guessing it's it's. We've talked about this before. When the film is, there needs to be a word for this. The film is an example of what it's trying to show you. Um, well, I think, yeah, um, in a more, it, it's a slightly more general observation that, that, that Mank is an attempt, many of the filmmaking techniques used in Mank are, are, are clearly an obvious attempt to recreate film techniques used in Citizen Kane. But with, um, much better cameras, they well, can't really make it look or, or, bad, they or, try. Well, I, I think that, <laughs> that, that cinematic techniques are similar, mm. um, the, the, you're right about things like talking over each other. I, I think that the the acting techniques and all how, how all that works is probably not as it's probably slightly dissimilar to the way Susan Kane forms. Mm. Anyway, um, I don't know if you, by the way, if you noticed there was like a little cue marks on, on in Mank the film. The the spots from yeah. Tyler Durden from yeah. Z- from yeah. Uh, yeah to quote Fight, Fight Club, Club cigarette burns they cigarette call. burns thank um, you yes. now now they don't no they were realistic too yeah. but they don't exi- they don't exist in modern film um, do they even exist in Citizen Kane uh, they probably do but you probably have to look out for them yeah um, whereas this was I loved that because it was an homage yeah. to Tyler Durden's job plus it was saying oh look at us using this yeah. is old timey yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean he was clearly yeah he was clearly sort of um, self you know being self-referential in terms of his own yes. directing but also um looking back looking back at the way old hollywood sort of worked but also yeah. just as a general the, the, the whole i mean the fact that you know a you shoot it in black and white b you use lots of c- contrast and blacks and whites yes. and, and shadows again very very citizen yeah um you have a very you have a sort of circular um flashbacky plot which is again classic way citizen kane was was done and written so mm. the the, the film Mank in of itself is is, is an homage to um, Citizen Kane, you would argue. The, the making of Citizen yeah. yeah, the how Citizen Kane looks. Also, I'd like to point out at this point, the there are these typewriter marks, aren't they, when they go yeah. back. I think they're only used when they go back in time. Yeah. Because the idea is, I'm guessing, Mank is sitting in bed in his convalescence, going, this scene, or Richard Alexander's doing it, actually. And then it takes you back. And... You get a lot of people complaining nowadays that films are too complicated for audiences. Mm. And I would say Mank is less complicated than Citizen Kane. When we watched Citizen Kane, I was shocked how you are not told at all you're going back in time. You just have to work it out. Mm. Well, I'll give you one, one better than that. Citizen Kane is told in flashback from the 
person's point of view from in whom's flashback you're going it is, yeah actually you see the same event taking place from two different points of view and that's that's quite sort of uh, I think being Susan's and not Leyland's Susan's and Leyland's actually yeah. Yeah. certainly when she's on stage in the opera house um, you see her point of view where she in this famous scene where she sees Leyland doing all that of course, of course that's unrealistic because she couldn't see him she couldn't see anybody yeah. um, and then another film where you see Leyland's point of view mm. um, so yeah when, when you're watching Susan Kane that, that you kind of pay attention to whose flashback you're in at the time Man just operates on a singular flashback mode because it's really about Mac's own flashback. Yeah, it's basically... Well, no, I would say... I don't know even, even know if it's even that. I think it's supposed to be what Mank wrote in his 300-page script. Uh, yeah. That's why I think it does the typewriter marks. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is flashback in the sense that it's his point of view because he existed in those scenes you're supposed to believe. Yeah. But... That's why I think they do the typewriter thing, because he does this. Because this is about how, or I thought it's about, how Citizen Kane, the film, is not the screenplay that he wrote. And that's why Orson Welles claims co-writing. Yeah. And I think that those flashbacks are like, this is what I wrote in my 300 piece thing. Mm. Which is why you can make it dramatic. In a screenplay, you can have people sitting around the fire, and unless it says talking over mm. each other, they will all deliver their lines. <laughs> One after the other. I, I tell you what. What I mean, another scene which I thought um, again. Th- this this is sort of. You, I, I like I like the way they did. I like the way Fincher did this, which is to say there are quite a lot of iconic moments in Citizen Kane that have become the stuff of legends over yeah. the years. One of which, for example, is the giant fireplace scene in Citizen Kane, um, where. Um, Susan sat around doing a jigsaw in front of this enormous, oversized fireplace. It's like it's from Brazil or something. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like you're having a conversation, you can't even hear yeah. each other. Two people alone <laughs> in this giant mansion. Yeah. And the way Fincher deals with this, he sort of says, Well, don't know exactly where that came from, but let's uh, assume from Mag's perspective that, I don't know, he gate crashes a dinner party one night and there happens to be a giant fireplace yeah. there and it comes from that. Um, you're invited, again, is that true or not? Again, you just don't really know. Well, I don't know. know. I'm sure but people have seen in, inside San Simeon. It's a real place. Yeah. It probably did have it, a it, massive it, fireplace. Yeah, it's like, it, it yeah. Might, yeah, so that might be one mm. of those sort of more truthful things. But he just sort of point, put, puts it in there. Because there's a scene when Mank goes to try and light a cigarette from the fire, this giant fireplace, and it all goes a bit wrong. Yeah. And you, it, he it, is very pissed at and, you, and your attention is is drawn to this giant yeah. fireplace. And, and I think, again, this is where it helps if you've... Mm you're familiar with Citizen Kane because you that was the first thing you think is oh that's where they got the uh, idea for the fireplace from do you want to talk about Stagecoach as well um, Mank and Stagecoach well I, I can I Kane. can I can talk about Stagecoach very very briefly but just to say before I say anything that this is me possibly stretching boundaries a touch it's okay um, but you know, so if anyone disagrees with this, you are more than welcome to. Because it might be this you. podcast is my version of events. Yeah, yeah. Twenty twenty. So there's a scene quite early on. So Mank has a broken leg for much of the film. Certainly the bits where he's writing the screenplay. And very early on in the film, you find out how he broke his leg, which is he was in a car with somebody else. I think it's is it not Joseph? It might be Joseph. I thought it might have been his brother. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. And I don't know. Something flies out the window, and they have a crash, and Mank breaks his leg. Yeah, Fr- it's a pretty horrific crash. There is a the way that scene is shot. Um, it's shot from two different angles, which you can't really describe. It's shot from one 
one side with the car going one way and then it's shot very briefly from the other side with the car going the other is way. Is that when he's fallen out um, of the car? After no, the car I, I don't even no. think it's that. I think it's just I when the car's remember. going along the road. Okay. And that is um, a classic 180 degree rule breach in, in a way. The, because because yeah. the car appears to be going from right to left and then yeah. in a subsequent shot it appears to be going left to right. Yeah. So you're kind of, well, which way is it really going? Now, yeah. ultimately, well, hang on. For the, for the uninitiated, so basically, if you're watching a film, mm. if it's not shot in the right way, it, it disconcerts the viewer. Yeah. Because when you, when, let's say you have two people in a conversation, if one person's looking left, then the other, then the other person, when they look back, has to look right. Yeah. To because your brain fabricates yeah. what would be the conversation it's, it's, if you saw it. It's just straightforward, really. Yeah. It, it just gives people a good sense. I'm sure of, everyone knows, but I yeah, just wanted it, it's, to. It's, people give a, a sense of spatial awareness, and and this isn't something that Hollywood just invented overnight. They they realised this because their audiences were getting confused by the way they were shooting things <laughs> in the very early days of, of yeah, cinema. And when I've done something, I've done now, that wrong. In now one of shooting. one of the films that famously breaks this rule is Stagecoach, yeah. uh, John Ford film, 1939, mm-hmm. the Western, when you have um, a wagon train going one direction mm-hmm. and then you it's being chased by, I don't know, some Native American tribe carrying sort of bows and arrows and whatnot. Yeah. And, he, and John Ford shoots this. Now, the, the, the actual, the way the scene, what it's supposed to be is they are chasing the stagecoach. Mm-hmm. He shoots it in such a way that the stagecoach is going left to right and the... Indians are going right to left, which yeah. looks like they are travelling towards each other. Yeah. Um, it's quite a famous scene. It's often quoted. The reason why I mention it is because yeah. it is... Orson Welles himself has said time and time again that he learned the art making of cinema by watching Stagecoach. I read time he, and time again. he watched it 40 times yeah. at least. And, and I just wonder whether, whether, whether Fincher threw this in as kind of um, an allusion to that, uh, the, of, of Welles' method of... of um, learning cinema because Fincher knows enough about movie making yeah. that you shouldn't do it's, that unless you're pointedly it's doing it's very it. obscure yes. as a reference which 99.99% of people wouldn't get and I don't know whether I'm just inventing it quite frankly I could well be oh I don't know um, but I just thought when I saw it I thought that looks a lot like Stagecoach hmm Stagecoach Wells yeah. yeah okay I can see the connection there but you know that's going to be lost on like virtually everybody quite frankly well aren't I lucky that I have um, you on this but, podcast well yeah but, the, yeah but then again I might be making that up Who knows? yeah but the fact that we're having the conversation and it links in Stagecoach mm is interesting in itself but I want to add another layer to this and and I might be wrong here but literally having come off of watching Citizen Kane and then going Mm. to record this podcast I don't think Wells ever breaks Mm. the 180 degree I don't think he does either no he's he's quite so don't you think it's even more interesting that it's about the making of things because if you'd have told me that Wells had a scene in Citizen Kane where it it breached this because he'd copied it from Stagecoach or or hadn't learned not Mm. to that would have made more sense, well, it, but this is even more meta. Well, it was the irony, isn't it? Yeah. That you learn how to make film. You learn how, You learn the art of filmmaking from a film which breaches one of the basic rules. Mm. But yeah, anyway. But this mm. is why this film is so good, but will lose some viewers. Yeah. Because some people just want to have a good time. Yeah. And people like us, who you know, want to talk about Tenet for five hours, I, we're, our good time is the analysis and what you can get out of a film so that one watch is never enough. Already on watching it, I miss so many. There are loads of references in Mank. There's a bit where I turned to you when we were watching Mank and I said, look, there's Shirley Temple. And I was joking and it turns out it is Shirley Temple. Temple. (laughs) Just because someone who looked like with the curly hair. There were all these famous people peppered throughout the film from the old Hollywood that 
like you know are put there as props who knows if they said what they said or if even those scenes even happened but it gets so much more confusing when you know these people all existed and yeah. possibly could have interacted I in think I think as a film it I, I your enjoyment of it is definitely improved if you know all about that particular period in history and if you know anything about Susan Kane and you know the background to it and all the conflicts and everything else I, I, because I found myself watching it probably doing what you were doing which was filling in gaps and go who's that who's that oh I see that's that person or, or you start to realise that's someone I should know but I don't know yeah, who it yeah, is yeah yeah that as well and there's this will mean something more yeah, to me yeah there's that as well and you also start potentially yeah. inventing things as I was doing with the whole stagecoach reference maybe maybe not I don't know but um, I think if you just watch it flatly without any of that knowledge, okay. my my personal view is you're not going to get as much out of it. Um, I, I I still think it will piece together and you probably enjoy it. But I I to, to me it, the reason why I rank this film quite high is because I quite quite like that piece of history and hence any film about that particular subject matter I'm always going to be slightly drawn to. Mm. Well, for me it's like it's film education but in a nice package which is entertaining. Mm. So for me. I don't know as much about it, but I can now go off and learn about it. And I think next time I'll put the subtitles on because I'd like to see what people are saying. Yeah. So I don't think we've even finished talking about the set pieces yet, but I won't spend too much more time. I love the scene where Marion and Mank are walking around the gardens yeah. of San Simeon and yeah. you see all those um, animals, mm. which I think could be CGI. Then there's probably some real animals I no there. I no but you just the beauty of a black and white film is I don't think you can tell so much anyway because mm. the depth of field's a bit different, isn't it? So I don't know if you can see. Uh, interesting, you should use that phrase. Depth oh, of field. It's, why uh, is that not what I mean? Well, no, it's just that that's, that's the that's the thing that Susan Kane is quite noted for. Its depth of field is deep focus. Anyway, carry on. Sorry, apologies. What did tell, tell me more about deep focus. When someone's far away, yeah, they're still in focus. Yeah, it's quite a, it was a sort of revolutionary technique that that, that um, well, Greg Toland, the cinematographer, came up with mm. for and Kane, which is to have every plane in focus and everything is relevant in the. In the I don't think that's how that scene comes across. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. I think there are parts in the film, but to be honest, it's different now because we're spoiled because we're used to more up-to-date methods of filming. It's probably less. It's probably more common these days to do that sort of thing anyway. To I, have depth of field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it was an issue back then because cameras weren't really up to having much... They, they tended to have quite a shallow um, yeah. depth of field. Um, well, you tell me this, right? There's a bit in that scene where there's some elephants and literally on <laughs> cue, at the end of a sentence, the elephant goes... And I'm like... Did you train that elephant or is it CGI? Oh, well, so that's yeah. where I yeah. thought yeah. it was too on the nose, perfect, on the trunk, perfect. That, um, um, yeah, which by the I way, I didn't think it was, they were real animals. Which by the way, <laughs> is that the scene I'm thinking of? It might be um, where it's a bit of a sound bridge into the next scene, the, the elephant. Uh, Oh, I can't remember. There's definitely a point where one of the animals screeches. Which is from Citizen Kane, yeah? Because I saw that bit today. Cockatoo, isn't it? What is that going on about? I had never seen that before, Mm. watching Citizen Kane. Mm. And it goes, yeah. But it was because he does the, he does, um, what is it, warps? What are the things that he does? Isn't that Wells invented? Not sure. Changing of scenes, merging and then wipes. Sorry, it's uh, like I'm in Star Trek. I don't know, actually. I thought he invented some kind of wipe between scene, and that was one of them was the cockatiel. I don't know. Anyway, um, so that scene was great, and that's really nice for Safri because obviously we'll get to shortly the Bechdel test and the representation issues. 
which yeah. of course there are in Mank, because we are talking about old Hollywood in the 30s, and that ain't a representative place. Um, <laughs> another scene, now a scene I did, I, I wonder whether we should talk about some criticism as well, because I absolutely love this film, but one of the things I didn't like, some of the scenes didn't hold the same pace or urgency or um, even drama, melodrama, the other scenes do. Yeah. It's important to state that, like, there's a dramatic theme all the way through. It's very, do you know what I think? There's like a thriller aspect to it when it's not a thriller. Or the music and the staging is thrilling in parts. I don't know if you remember, maybe you didn't notice, but it was suggesting at one point, I thought I was going to be in an Agatha Christie or Poirot (laughs) murder where man gets murdered. And, you know, it's it's like once upon a time in Hollywood, but like the bad version where man gets murdered and Wells takes all the credit. Um, And uh, it's the same people, um, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, who do the music, but they do this really cool old school you know Hollywood music but I, I felt all the way through that there was some kind of threat and then this threat never materialises yeah, okay, maybe the threat is just like you've got to get this script made in 60 days man can, and that's it and there's, and also I suppose some things about his alcoholism Yeah, there's a lot of weird scenes with this weird thing where his drink has been his alcoholic drink has been spiked with something that makes him go to sleep so if he wants to keep writing, he can't drink as much. It's all very strange. We haven't even really talked about the scenes with Lily Collins and the German nurse and the mm. woman who I need to find her name. Um, because they're like a third of the film. Is, they're is, quite relevant. Yeah, them, and yet they're not as stagey. Like it's more exciting when you've got Hurst and Davies because it's like you know it's rich famous people doing crazy shizzle yeah but... I, yeah I, I know what you mean by that I, um, it reminds me a little bit of the Iron Lady in that respect which is that um, basically a film split in half half of it is Margaret Thatcher losing her mind in the present and half of it is flashback and there is no doubt in my mind the half that was flashback is a hell of a lot more interesting than the half in the present where she's losing her mind and I think you could say it could be said of do you think it was less um, interesting? I think it was less stagey. You know, they're not set pieces, but I do. I did enjoy the characterization and the relationship because that bit about the platonic love affairs really struck a chord with me. Because Mank clearly loves his wife, but spends very little time with her. They have three boys, I think, and mm. there's there's you know a couple of scenes where she's just parenting, and she has accepted that she has married someone who is a bit of a loose cannon yeah. in the way that screenwriters are always portrayed as such. You yeah. know, it's all very Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. You know, I have to get off my head and I have to do crazy stuff. I've always got nothing to write about. <laughs> and um, but it seems Mank particularly has this relationship with women where he relies on them. I really liked the way Fincher did it. It didn't feel like something I'd seen a lot of. Like we were talking about earlier, like I didn't think there was a lot of sexual or traditional sexual tension. Instead, it's if you look at Citizen Kane, for example, to try and get this back to Citizen Kane, there is an idea about Rosebud. We need to talk about Rosebud as well. Um, uh, there's an idea that Rosebud is representative of the life he had with his mother, her, um, Kane had with his mother, before he was taken away 
Um, well, to quote Lucy from Peanuts Gang, yeah. what? It's the sled, stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you and I have a different take on this because <laughs> the, to me, the sled is representative, whereas you're just saying you think don't mm. think too hard about it. I think the sled is about the bond that Cain has with his mother who was trying to get him off to a better life and he yearns for a simpler life when it was just then. Mm. And then if you look at Mank, there's this strange bond between Mank and these female characters that he doesn't have with anyone except for maybe Joseph, his mm. brother. He, he, like, the women dote on him, but they are paid to do so in their jobs. Yeah. No, none of the female characters to me are put upon or abused in any way other than, like, you know, women have a set role and men have a set role, as was true of the time. But um, the Lily Collins and, and uh, sorry, I was just the Rita and Mank dynamic is really interesting because she's very matronly and you know obviously you know that's why she you know it was a british person because there's a stereotype there about the english matron character mm. but they really bond over um she's got a husband who goes off to war and they don't know if he got killed and um she has to be so kind of staid and thoughtful and she wants to put all of her time into her work looking after Mank and then Mank is more frivolous but also seems to care very much about her and it's the the writing of the screenplay is very much about her as it is him he is doing all the thought he Mm. deserves all the credit but this film also gives her a bit more yeah and also the German nurse um and when you next speak I'm gonna look up her name because I feel very bad not being able to say the actress's name um also, really interesting dynamic where she's there to humanise Mank because she, without giving too much away, like tells some stories about what a nice person Mank actually is. Because I don't think Mank is that great a guy, but you love him. He is your lovable anti-hero. Well, he's the he, he's the guy that always says the right thing at the right time, or, or at least the witty the, 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 thing, the witty thing yeah. at the right time. He's the Oscar <laughs> Wilde of Hollywood yes. in the nineteen world. Well, at least that's the way he's portrayed. Yeah. Um, but that that's a double-edged sword because um, if you constantly are looking for the um, ritty, the, the, the witty, witty retort, not the yeah. ritty retort, the ritty retort, um, the, the witty <laughs> retort, if in a serious situation that can that can backfire quickly. Mm. Of course, there is the scene where she says, "Well, her husband's going off to war and he's flying such and such a plane, hurricanes," and then uh, and he Ma- says Ma- they're the most like makes some yeah. comment about Messerschmitt's being better, and and that obviously doesn't go down well with her. <laughs> I think he knows he's crossed the line at that point because he suddenly gets this dose of reality, which is, yeah, actually he's in mortal danger, uh, and I'm not. And I think that, that that cements something. There is this, there is this sort of non, this sort of perceived difference between the non-reality of Hollywood and the reality of what was really going on in the world at the time, which is hinted at at times. And the, the non-reality of and they Hollywood. say concentration camps. Yeah, what's what are a, they? Yeah, what's a that can't camp? be happening. Yeah. Yeah. Hitler seems all right. I don't know what's really... You know, the, the, yes, although some people did think Hitler was okay yeah, at the beginning. So yeah, like that well, feels more realistic. I, 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 it's this this idea of people sat around in a giant Hollywood mansion trying to work out what, what the problems are in the world when they really, really don't... It's amateur hour. They really don't understand it in, 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 in a way that... And, and then you juxtapose that against someone... Hang on a minute. There is a real war going on and people are actually dying. And, and I think Mank recognises... He's the bridge between the two worlds in, in some respects. Um, she um, represents the, the, the real world 
who's actually, you know. Well, if anything, I actually think she's the bridge. Yeah. I think her husband's in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think she's at home, yeah, but her heart right. and her mind yeah. is concentrating on her husband coming back. But um, to, to go back slightly to the part about the platonic relationship, I think that's really interesting as well, because we talk about nowadays emotional affairs. I don't know if you've heard this mm. term, but basically where, let's say a married person has been married for a while, is not getting on with their spouse, and then they end up, you know, the way we would do it is, you know, WhatsApp someone, oh, mm. my life's so tough, let's go for a drink. And then even if nobody kisses or has sex or anything like that, you have shared a part of yourself with someone that traditionally and maybe morally is actually reserved for the person who is recognised as your yeah. partner. If, if we're all saying this is all people who are monogamous, I know yeah. that there are different relationship setups now, but the traditional model, let's say. Um, but I think that what Mank does is basically have emotional affairs. He has one with Rita. Mm. He has one with Marion. Mm. He's probably kind of having one with the German nurse yeah. as well. But it's so well written and directed that you don't feel as... Or I don't feel personally as a woman who you know sees a lot of affairs on TV. I, I don't feel as predisposed to hate him as I think I should do. It's a funny one, really, because there's not... At, at no point in that film is he in any real danger of, of cheating on his on his wife. And well, it, no, hang on with the Gents, because you're saying that cheating is a sexual act. Yes, well, yes. physically cheating. Yeah, um, this is this is what I'm getting um, at. But I, there is a question there about if you form a friendship with someone that never overtly spills out into anything romantic, but perhaps there are inward feelings that you suppress because you're... You know, you're, you believe in the you know sanctity of marriage or whatever it happens to be. Mm. Does that make it any better or worse? Um, it, it, yeah. Um, I don't think it the, is. The, I, I think I, this is the definition of a an emotional. He's having multiple emotional well, affairs. Well, I also think it, it's not wholly. See, this is where the the, the portrayal of Hollywood is, an is is a slight falsehood going on here. It, it, it's not like people in Hollywood weren't cheating on their on their wives and husbands in the 1930s. I, I Everybody guarantee was, you they because were. Because you had to get married in order but it was to have not, sex. But it, but it was never made public. That, no, that was all it really because was. Because there was reputation. There was reputation issues. to consider. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Mank is portrayed by Gary Oldman in this film as he's in no danger of having a... He doesn't look physically like he's capable of doing it. Do you know what I mean? He's not physically attractive enough to sort of like sort of pull that off, it seems like to me. I suppose as well, if you want to go with a... Like a... Let's be a, honest. A, the, the, a meta-narrative. Yeah. He's literally encased. Yeah. His penis is encased Well, look, let's be plaster. honest. The, the, the women that he is, you know... <laughs> interested in, in inverted commas that aren't his wife he is they are you know sort of out of his league certainly from a looks perspective yes and no um, but I think Gary Oldman is actually older than Mank was at the time so mm. maybe that's a little bit of a misconception I don't the, Mank was kind of to me averagely well, looking keep in, well, keep in mind, but these is, women might have been average yeah, but keep in mind this is a fictional mm. account so we can only we can only sort of uh, but yeah. Mank may well have been having affairs. Yeah, but we, we can only react to what, the real we're, we can only react to what we're seeing on screen. The portrayal that Fincher chose to put together was incredibly yeah. attractive women and not that physically attractive Mank. Um, and he, yes, he may form uh, emotional attachments, but there's, there's no danger whatsoever. It's never even remotely insinuated that they're going to cross that line. That in of itself, by the way, mm. might be a, a comment on, on the nature of the way Hollywood worked at that time, which is... 
people were having an affairs, but but for, for the purposes of, uh, you know, for, for appearances, no one's having an affair. So there might be a, a conscious decision on Fincher's part to say, hey, maybe Mike was having an affair with all of these, with both of these mm. women, but, but for appearances sake, we're going to say that he's not. In other words, it's not a comment on the way Hollywood reacted. Yeah, but my point is, an affair does not have to yeah. involve physical acts to be an affair. So yeah. um, what no, did you yeah, think true. of the speech that Poor Sarah, Don't Call Me Poor Sarah, makes towards the end of the film, where she talks about those... What's she saying that exactly? She says, I've put up with you gambling. I've put up with you spending lots of time away from me. I've put up with bringing up your sons on my own. Yeah. I've put up with all your silly platonic affairs. So she's even saying, she, well, she's kind of, she's denigrating them. She's minimising them, which I think as a wife of a husband who's been spending all this time with other women, you might do for your own sanity. But also, she she's of your ilk whereas think she thinks it's not technically an affair because you i know you're not having sex with people but you're still spending lots of time with lots of other women i quite like that speech because i think her character that the whole naming of her is to suggest she's put upon the Mm. whole time but i thought she had some balls for want of a better phrase um it's 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 portrayed as an uneven relationship isn't it because he's out there basically gallivanting around hollywood drinking Hanging out with Hurst, and, but not screwing around. Not screwing around, but still mm. living, you know, to a certain extent, a certain life of Riley going on there, mm-hmm. where she's uh, back in was it New York, um, or something, some, back somewhere in the east of America, um, raising the kids. Yeah, she's an old, she's uh, a long way away. Um, it's, it's not exactly a an even. I think I always wonder what, why did you get married in the first place? If you're not, if you don't want to live together. Or, if, or you're happy to separate for extended periods of time. What's the point? I think some people, and I think Orson Welles was like this as well, because he was married multiple times, including to Rita Hayworth. Um, I think some people, particularly creative people, are in love with love. Okay. And, and thus marriage being an expression of it. But also, if you wanted to get with someone, you had to get flipping married no, I to suppose, them. I suppose. Yeah. It just, just strikes me that for, the, for you know for publicity. I mean, there is such a thing as I think there is such a thing as genuine Hollywood relationships, mm. and, and and there is such a thing as, as fictitious Hollywood relationships, which look the part but probably weren't the part. But then, it, but it's, or people who it's because people seem to be narrowed down into good or bad, and it's good if you yeah. find one person and stay with that yeah. person the rest of your life and are a saint. Yeah, yeah. But, and then people end up going the other way. But, um, can yeah. I just say? The nurse is called Fraulein Frieda, okay. and she's played by an actress called Monica Gossman. So I just want to mention her. She's very good. She doesn't do very much, which leads me on to: Do you think this te- this film passed the Bechdel test? If it did, it was probably between those two. I'd have thought. What? Yeah, keep going. What do you think? Do you, th- um, do you think there was a scene? Maybe. Yeah. You don't remember? No, I, it's not that. I mean, I I, I reckon. It may have done. I can't remember a specific scene, but they, they did have the odd conversation, so it's possible. So I think it barely passed. I think there were two conversations that I recall. There might be some other ones, like you said, but the two I recall are... I don't, I don't think Marion... I don't think it passes with Marion because she spends a lot of time with either Hurst or Mank, or she's surrounded by people, and I don't count that yeah, as I'm counting. Not sure she really, yeah. Because we're talking about two female named characters talking about something other than a man. So there is a scene where, in the kitchen, 
Fraulein, Frieda and Rita are talking about Manx drinking and what they need to do to make sure everything's okay. And then there's an interesting scene. But primarily, that scene is about Manx. Mm. So it's failed that limb of the test, which is it can't be about, they can't be talking mm. about man. However, there are other parts in that scene where they're talking about clearing up or some bollocks. <laughs> yeah, real, um, real, real, not real feminist yeah. stuff, yeah. Exactly. Well, I just mean technically, if we're going for a technical pass, is it a real pass? No. And then there's another scene, it gets this, it gets better, where they go to the winning party or the party where they think the governor, the guy opposite Upton Sinclair, is going to win. So the um, Republican Party, which mayor is at. And Sarah comes with Mank to that party. And they were like, oh, we don't expect you to be here. To both of them, because they were voting for Upton Sinclair. And um, the woman stands up, who's a wife of one of these people. Maybe Thalberg, I don't know. And says, oh, Sarah, it's so nice to see you. We must go shopping sometime. Okay. So that passes. Okay, another, another, Although uh, I don't know if another nail in the coffin of feminism. Yeah, exactly. On. So when someone asked me about this in in on Twitter, I was like, well, the difference for me and the reason why this podcast is because is ugh, I'm tired is called Beyond Beckdale is because you want the, more than that. Well, yes, I want more. Or it doesn't have to be the Beckdale test in order to be liberating for feminism. Now, this film is not particularly feminist, but I didn't go into it thinking that it would be. So my bar was set quite low. When you're making a historical melodrama about the men who created various scripts and films, you're not often going to get the unsung heroines. Um, And in fact, the heroines aren't even really part of it. There's a bit, in fact, yes, we should probably mention this. We've talked about Fincher's uh, perviness in various episodes of this series. And um, there is a scene, there is only one scene which is stupid and is there to make a point. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? No. It's when at the, maybe the Algonquin Club or whatever that group of pitching scriptwriters at the beginning of the film, or the beginning of the first scene back in the past oh, in yeah, Manc, yeah. there is a secretary about. typing yeah. and she is dressed semi-nakedly. Yeah. what's that all about? <laughs> Don't know. That was just a Fincherism going, they're such dicks. It is, I think that both Citizen Kane and Mank um, are not owe something to. I think the film Wolf of Wall Street owes something to <laughs> both of those films. There's something about... Well, not to Mank, it can't, because it, uh, Mank wasn't made. So, yes, okay, all right then. Well then, yes, maybe it goes Citizen Kane, Wolf of Wall Street, Mank. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, there is there is this thread through of the showgirl and her role <laughs> in Hollywood, which is come on in a pretty not their outfit, do something and then leave for men's entertainment. It happens in a scene in Citizen Kane. Obviously, it's basically the plot for Wall Street. If it's not a, a small person, then it's the woman with the tits out. And there was this scene, and I just thought that might be true. That might have been in Jack Fincher's script, or it might be something. That actually happened. It was completely unnecessary, except it did what Fincher wanted it to do, which was me to go, what the fuck is that woman doing there with her tits out? It draws your eye, it doesn't, doesn't it? It doesn't really serve any function. But, <laughs> no. Okay, first of all, my I would say 
I cannot believe that there is enough historical record to know whether such a thing actually happened. Well, there might be um, stories that it generally happened. Yeah, the, maybe not in that room. The total, at that time. totally anecdotal. Yeah, right? and as and as I believe, a lot of this film was invented. You yeah. could either include it or not. Um, are, you, are you being a feminist, Nick? Well, are you saying it was unnecessary well, to have okay, that woman in well, the film? Well, let's ask ourselves what 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 might be the point. He might just be making a, a sort it's a of shock. Uh, or, or he might just be making a statement about the the uh, you know misogyny of, of Hollywood. There at weren't the time. any female screenwriters yeah, yeah. in that. He might, room. He, might, he might be just doing that. Yes, but I'm it, sure that's what he was but, doing. But it doesn't actually, you know, it really just sort of sort of stands out as quite because it doesn't go anywhere. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't lead anywhere. It, it's, it's not like it's, it's ever. Incidental. It, it's not explained. Hmm. It's in the background. Hmm. So you it, you know you, you're kind of limited in what you think it's there hmm. for. Really? Yeah. So there are there are either ways. Yeah. I didn't like it. It drew my attention and it actually made me like gasp because I was just like, what is she doing? Especially because I think what was really weird about that scene is no one is addressing it and everyone is literally talking to her about writing things down and not saying and not not joking with her and going, oh look what you're wearing. Well, hang on. It was literally like that was normality. Right. But let's just like run a bit of logic through this. Yes. The 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 implication is mm-hmm. that she is in that role and she has to dress that way because the men in the room are requiring her to dress that way. Yes. Um, again. That, yeah. Don't think it was a personal yes, choice. Yeah. Don't believe she thought this <laughs> yeah. would be a great look yeah. for um, the yeah. Hollywood lot today. Um, so again, if I, I cannot, I'll say this again. I cannot mm. believe that. Mm. That, that there is enough factual evidence that such a thing happened to have included, which it, it might be anecdotal, but that's, that's about it. Yeah. Which means the decision to include it by Fincher is it has to be a statement. Yes. Um, um, yeah, but he gets to get it both ways. Mm. There's the classic case of a man using a semi-naked woman in a film, going, oh, but I'm making a statement on using semi-naked women in a well, film. Well, let's ask ourselves, Mm-mm-mm. what do you come out with it with? Do you, do you come out with it thinking, oh, those bastard misogynist Hollywood, Hollywood lights? Or, or, do you, or are you just... Sort of you're left, right, it wasn't enough of a statement. slightly puzzled yeah. about it all, yeah. and I think if you're going to make a statement, yeah. you've got to make it a bit stronger than that. I've been a little sixes and sevens recently. Tell me something, Meg. The truth. Could you see me playing Elizabeth Barrett Browning or Marie Antoinette? Irving's bought them both. You know, because of Pops. What do you think? And honestly... I see more as Dulcinea. Who? Dulcinea. From the Spanish for sweetness. Let's segue into something else mm. now. So, um, just quickly summarise. The female characters are really well written. They have more to do than I expected them to do. But this isn't a film, except for maybe you could say Marianne Davis. You, could, you didn't have to have Sarah in it at all. You didn't have to have any wife in that film at all, I don't think. But Marion Davis is essential because it's trying to rewrite a historical wrong as to who she was as a mm. person, and also it's about Manx's friendship with her. And I haven't really—I don't think we've even said enough about Savory. Did you like her performance? Yeah, yeah, mm. I did. Um, so I, I think all the women characters were great. I, I think I, I still think that the insinuation—call it what you want—but the insinuation is that it's some very deep and non-expressed level. He is in love with her. All right. Well, we'll agree. Um, we'll agree to disagree because I don't and, agree. And and I think that her portrayal, therefore, in Citizen Kane, 
Uh, well, it's to try and mask that. Yeah, well, it is is to try and it show to the world, see how see how unhappy Hearst has made her. But then this film, Mank, does the opposite. He tries to say, well, you're not that unhappy. But could, but could he not feel sorry for her rather than be in love with her? Well, I, I, I'm just you're not, really hammering this narrative well, that I never I, I, saw. I'm just not sure that you'd go to that length to include a character like Susan in Susan Kane unless you had a deep emotional attachment there. Well, Oh, I think there's a better reason, which is it makes for a great screenplay. Well, it does, but but then where are you getting your inspiration from? Where, where are you drawing it from? I, I, I don't know. Yes, but, but I mean, Susan Alexander is not a person who women are going, wow, I really want to be her. No, they're not. They're not. And men are probably going, what a downtrodden, drunken blonde woman who can't sing, apparently, yeah, even though yeah. she can. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she starts out in, on, on the sort of right foot in Susan Kane, which makes me think, I, I, I don't know, there's a part of me I that... don't know, she's just giggling and she's got a toothache come on there, there is but but there's there's this idea that mm. you know Kane kind of um, corrupts her into mm. the, or turns her into something but do you um, like the Marion Davis yes let's, can, yes. We, can we exclude all men in the yes, film tell yes, me what I you do. think about Marion I, I do I do yeah. um, and uh, yeah she's she, well she's just more rounded I, I, I think I think She's instantly identifiable, I think, as, as, as Susan. And I think... But if you hadn't watched Citizen Kane mm. and you didn't know anything yeah. about this, you're watching Mank, you don't yeah. really know what's going on, yeah. Do you are you interested in these female characters? Uh, well, I think Marion... Yes. Uh, but again, you, you, you kind of have to... If there's no... I mean, just on a sheer filmmaking level, if mm. you don't think there's a romantic entanglement there and you're ignoring her involvement mm. in Susan Cain and you have to question what the point of her is... It's a platonic affair, mm. which was well, pointed out well, by David Fincher. Yeah, but but I, I, that, that, that doesn't mean that, that Mank doesn't have you very know deep... I can things. never refute you. Yeah. I don't know what a fictional representation well, of yeah. a real person in a film that's in itself paying homage to another film about someone's feelings yeah. is. So um, I wanted to segue onto people of colour because I wanted to say something about that. But I've just remembered we need to talk about Rosebud. The best thing <laughs> that I found out in Mank, and I hope it's true, and I did some reading afterwards, and it may be true, is that actually Rosebud was the pet name for Marion Davis' clitoris, as given to her by Hearst. Ah. And that Mank found out about and inserted it into the script. Ah, there we go. So William Randolph Hearst might have been a complete and utter bastard, still knew where the clitoris is, so he's better <laughs> than a lot of men. So I thought that was fascinating because I much prefer that to a sled. And it kind of, it, it feels visually representative as well. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that Citizen Kane did better than Mank is it included more people of colour. They're only in it for a little while, but I counted three scenes where you have a maid or a servant or uh, various people, I think, who are going past in a coach or something like that. Do not get me wrong. Neither of these films are good for black causes. They are very, very white. They basically yeah. treat... If you ever see a person of colour on the screen, they're in a, um, a service role, I think, or they're just passing. But I was surprised that... Mank had only one person of colour, which was in the propaganda video that the character Shelley, which we haven't even mentioned, makes in relation to this Upton Sinclair, another yeah. guy thing. I don't know if you noticed him. He was, and it was, I thought again that was a dig at Trump because it was very much about how he's been finding these um, uh, like a black uh, politicians to support him as if to say, I can't be racist mm. because look, I have black people in my party or black people are, well, as members, members of the government. It's an old political 
number that. But if I'd have said to you, do you think there are more um, actors of colour in Citizen Kane or Mank, would you have picked Citizen Kane? (laughs) Well, no, I wouldn't. But at the same time, it's not as if they're overly represented in Citizen Kane. No, no, no. I'm just saying I found that quite weird because I was expecting there to be nobody. Well, it's it's the same principle as subject matter. It's not good representation. Let me just say that. It's the same principle as of representation of women. If you're going to do a film about. Hollywood screenwriters and filmmaking of the 1930s mm. and early 40s, it is going to be male dominated because ultimately that that's what, you know, that's what the, all the industry was like. And it, white and, male, white male and dominated and it, from a certain well, listen, background. Well, and and it's going to be, and it's going to be, uh, yeah, white dominated yes. is what I was going to say. Yeah, but I think a particular, you know, this, this particular patriarchal privilege of a certain type of white man you know they're educated so in a, so they get to go to college and i was reading up about mank the person he was very bright he passed the entrance exam to go to college when he was 13 but didn't actually go until later because he didn't want to go or he wasn't allowed to go i don't mm. know until later like um, the, the, this is the issue with these kind of things right should mank have been made given the number of subjects maybe using underrepresented groups that could be made into a film in Hollywood. And if you're looking purely at numbers, then you could say no. But it's the same way that I feel about 1917. Should they have made 1917? Probably not. There are loads and loads of war films. But both Mank and 1917 bring something from a technical and an educational point of view that I personally hadn't seen before. And also, I thoroughly enjoyed both films. Mm. They, They have drama, they have comedy. And they are made by people who are excellent filmmakers. Nonetheless, mm. they're men, they're white men making these, white privileged men making these films about other white, maybe not so privileged in the uh, war, but um, mm. uh, ab- about other white stories. And so therefore, you can try your hardest to put women white, which are white women, into Mank, which I think, I think Fincher did. I think he did the best he possibly could with um, uh, having female characters because of there being real people and a real story um, without changing things in a way which would have been like once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. But at the same point, maybe there should have been a film about Marion Davis where she's the star. Uh, yeah, you could have done. Um... And then you have Hurst in it. You have Mank in it. And it's all taken from her perspective. Who's to say that Jack Fincher couldn't have written that biopic she she had access to the really fascinating people who did amazing well, things it's possible it's possible yeah. i don't know i don't know i mean i i, I also sometimes i just think uh, films that are about certain historical elements and revisionist history are just worth watching for you know for the hell of it anyway um yes as long as the audience knows it's revisionist history this is again <laughs> well, the crown yeah, problem yeah well it's a problem with that you or, 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 or we don't know the it's history it's a problem that you always have yeah. with these things which is um, I, you don't know I, you don't know what's true and what's not and I think as long as that's it, it's never truly conveyed to the audience what's true and what's mm. not but yeah, does it does it truly matter no provided no one walks away from it thinking what they've just seen is a complete accurate representation of history probably isn't mind you the same could be said in 1917 it, you know it's not as if um, all that sort of stuff happened are you telling me those two guys didn't do that I definitely think it well, happened what I, I'm going way off one here but what I will say is that the death of 1600 British soldiers uh, as a result of a German offensive a trap mm. wouldn't have bloody raised a batted and no one would have batted an eyelid in yeah. British command at that, that kind of numbers but you're making my point for me which is 
that was an interesting story which mm. we didn't know about but we loved mm. why can't someone write an interesting story about a female character from history which we don't know about but might be fascinated so well yeah i say this all the time i want a natalie wood biopic here's someone fascinating there's mm. loads of other people I've, I've mentioned before i've done an episode could... of the podcast on verna fields who's a famous editor of lance of arabia and made the match cut yeah we could do the whole revisionist history where she's involved in a massive gunfight on a boat with well, the difference between you and me is that I'll, 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 I'll get happy about revisionist history when there's been enough actual history yeah. put to celluloid or, or whatever it is now, digital film. Um, okay, a couple of things because we've been going on a long time as is usual, but there's a lot to get through with Mank. Um, Colour, we talked about this with all the, the David Finch films. Obviously, this is black and white and his his first and only black and white movie as yeah, far as I can see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I just really enjoyed. I well, like black and white movies, particularly ones that are made nowadays. I, I felt this about Roma as well, which is they're better quality because of what you have access to now. So the, the black and the white is shades of grey. It's not like when black and white was all you had um, and sometimes you couldn't see things so clearly. Yeah, I think it depends on the film. Um, I think it's a stylistic choice, isn't it, to do it in black and white or not. Um, and but I it think makes perfect sense for this In this film, film it, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, if you're going to try and emulate Citizen Kane in terms of filmmaking, then yeah, you're probably going to make it in black and white. Why wouldn't you? And he does, th- and he does these. He Fincher does make these changes, and he these these. Sorry, he does make these homages, but also he doesn't do it. He could really do like that stupid Psycho remake. He doesn't do any kind of scene for scene stuff. Like you know the famous bit in Citizen Kane where you have the four characters. I think you have two scenes in a row where you have four characters that are all positioned beautifully, and then they move position, mm. but they all stay in focus, and they all have their kind of it's also representative of their power in the conversation. I love that. That is where Wells is, is an absolute genius and you can see what he's done. Mm. That probably was not in a screenplay because that's not... You don't often have directorial choices, do you? Yeah, you in wouldn't. A yeah, screenplay. That, that was pretty much worse. No, maybe in a shooting screenplay, but certainly not in what Mank probably wrote. But you don't see Fincher do that. Fincher always perfectly um, sets out his films anyway. He likes... Um, symmetry he likes putting things in different parts of the film he's one of those people he's got a cool editor i've forgotten that guy's name i think his name is german um he's got a great editor on this film and i felt like there was no like copying he could have done that couldn't he could have easily have had scenes just the same as citizen kane but he didn't because that was too obvious and all that i think if he i agree with you i don't think he did either um i, I, I wonder if he'd have included the odd one well, maybe he did and we've forgotten I yeah know, I yeah notice. i might not have seen it actually um i i again that it's one for the film buffs isn't it that mm. it, it's like we're going to throw in this this tiny recreated scene from mm. Um, Citizen Kane, but doing it in a slightly different way, like matching frame rates. Like, for example, you know how uh, the the this boxing matching Raging Bull, the black and white film, yes. um, between um, very amazing between scene. Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta. Scorsese admitted afterwards that what he'd done is he'd taken the shower scene in Psycho and matched it shot for shot, same length, same everything, and that that seemed to re- so. You, if you were Fincher, you could have done something like that. You you don't have to recreate the exact framing, but you can. Sort of, you know, recreate the timing and exactly, else. but I don't know. Well, this is a kid's quite famous for long takes, so you, you might have. I don't, I don't oh, remember. yeah, the, well, the, the scene by the fire where they're sitting down I noticed was long. We yeah. haven't even mentioned actually 
because I was talking about criticism and then I think I went on to say something nice again except for maybe I was criticising about women so that scene at the end which again I won't go into too much detail but where Mank is basically losing it and shouting all this stuff at Hurst I didn't really enjoy it was a strange denouement if it was that or climactic well okay to watch that scene um, objectively you would say Hurst actually Hurst and Mayor who who are his the two kind of theoretical antagonists in that scene. Yes, sat next to each other in that um, scene. Yeah. Don't exactly act what, you, what any objectively you might describe as unreasonable. Um, no, I they think, don't try and stop him. Um, they just listen to him come out with a he, load of shit. He bungles in, um, <laughs> yeah. drunk, spouts off a load of crap, pukes everywhere, and <laughs> I said I wasn't um, going to spoil the scene, but now you have. But. <laughs> You know, Mayor, Mayor goes off on him a little bit, but I think he had it coming. But, but Hurst, after he's but Hurst, already... Hurst is yeah. incredibly calm. And you yes. get this sense that Hurst loves Mank in spite of everything, that he yeah. loves the way he talks. He Do you knows, think is what Marion says? He knows he can't be friends with him. He knows that Mank's crossed the line and that's hmm. that. But the, the Well, he calls him a court jester. Yeah, he says, Marion says at one point, I think, he has you around because you make him think from another perspective. Yeah, yeah. Like the way you talk, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But Finch is definitely insinuating there that, um, again, it comes down to the way Citizen Kane ends up getting made. The insinuation is there that had Hurst done anything, had he really wronged Mank in any particular way? Maybe not. And maybe a lot of it was in Mank's mind, actually. But that's just the idea you you can go away with. But I just, I think that scene went on for too long Mm. and I didn't really care for what he was saying because... It's only worth following a drunken person around, in my opinion, if they're suddenly coming up with gold nuggets. I think if they're just saying a load of old crap, like, we didn't want to see Mank disintegrate. Although I suppose that's, maybe it's the, it, maybe it was what happened before he had the car crash. Maybe, I don't know what the chronology is. Yeah, I think it is, actually. Maybe, yeah. maybe, it maybe is. that makes yeah, sense. It is, yeah. Um, also, there's, there's just a general observation about bit of a cliche but the the alcohol induced descent into kind of ranting is quite a commonly used yeah but it's not something you want in this film at the end because you want the high and you do get the high at the very end because we all know this is what fincher does he does an ending and then does a little extra ending Mm. on the end which is always a bit more positive and that's what he did in this um quickly class wars do you remember we looked through this for other fincher films Mm. So what are we saying here? Hollywood's a bit more different because it kind of, success kind of evens out class warfare a bit. But Citizen Kane is entirely a film about class. Uh, it's a team... It, well, and, and how it relates to wealth. I, I don't know, yeah. I don't know whether or not it's class in the kind of traditional old money sense, the kind of that you see in uh, The Game and uh, Panic Room and things like that. I, I don't think it's that. Although Hurst is that kind of wealthy person. He is, but this yeah. is this is more a, a much more sort of crass difference between mm. wealth and non-wealth. And, and when I say wealth, I mean real hard, huge amounts of money yes. wealth. Because Mank can't be that poor, to be perfectly frank. Um, but, oh, well, he was on a very good salary, and I yeah. think he's quite famous for having the first ever like million-dollar yeah. screenwriter. Yeah, but I do feel like it was feast or famine for him because he pissed everybody off. Well, well, well. If he's hanging, well, more to the point, if he's hanging around with Solberg, Mayer, and Hurst, he's going to look like the pauper at that point. Yeah. Um, well, that means it is about rich people. Well, because you've named well, some pretty what, what, important characters. What, what you've really film. got there is the difference between mm. wealth and capitalism, um, which you could, which you could say is very similar to that. That the, the idea of class and everything else versus a a more sort of 
fairer and dare I say it socialist view which is the one that Mank sort of tends towards as the film kind of rolls on well he is I would say he's not doing as much about it as we think mm. I think that Mank's idealism and Mank's life are not the same thing we'll put it this maybe way maybe because of the way he has to live we'll put it this way um in the scene, the one we talked talked about earlier, where they're all sat around at the party having the, yes. the conversation, two 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 alternate forms of government come up, being communism and yes. uh, fascism. And he says, "You know the difference between communism and socialism." I remember. Yeah, yeah, that, that I was, was like, a big deal. Let me it? just look that up because yeah. I get confused between the two. Well, well, the, the, I mean, he said a really good thing. Well, I think he said something well, like, "It's what do, we, do you remember the quote?" He said, "Well, not so, exactly, uh, but, but I, th- I think." Look, look, I mean, whatever sorry, the I was just fascinated by communism. It doesn't yeah. really matter. In, in, in he, a, I think he said, sorry, quickly, I think he said communism uh, is everyone wants to be poor and socialism is everyone wants the wealth to be spread out. Well, is that kind I, of no, right? Yeah. Well, maybe I can't remember. The poverty well, to be spread the point out being, The point being, yeah. at this stage, you have um, a pretty aggressive fascist rise in Europe from Italy and from Germany. Yes. Now, they wouldn't have known exactly where this was going, but they'd have had a pretty good idea at this point. Hitler had all invaded various countries, yeah. so they would have known this. Um, and then you have a pre-existing, uh, re- you know, communist sort of fear factor that existed in America since the like, late teens, early twenties. The Red Scare, uh, you know, yeah, it were. Russians. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, the re- when you when you when you look at that, of which of those two alternate mm. forms of government comes off worse in that conversation? It is communism or socialism, whatever you want to call it. They are yeah. everyone universally hates it, and the reason why is because it interferes with wealth. It downs capitalism. Um, and that's what that, that's where that argument really comes from. What this is really about is the super wealthy and how they and how they acquired it um, versus um, the you know set in the 1930s during the Great Depression versus you know the, the opposite side when that that gap between rich and poor was at its most extreme. And even under that, even under that, even though they can see the 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 the, mm. the dangers of fascism, the danger that Hitler poses, they given the choice, they would yeah. still go with that rather than communism. Let's think about that in today's world. Mm. Say no more. Um, it does also. There are also a few like uh, people affected by mm. being fired so you do see that poverty side but you see it how it affects mank which is only mm. a little bit mank doesn't even give that guy a dollar who needs one he gets it off a flipping guard there are some things that mank does where mank managed to put himself in the echelons of the rich and famous doesn't have to think about helping someone else with money i thought that was a really there's some just really telling little scenes about the kind of person mank is and mank thinks he's a wonderful person and i do think he has good idealistic views which he got to put into the depiction of Kane, but ultimately he's part of the system well, he's, a willing, well. he's a willing participant isn't yes. he? he he's worse because he knows he's, he's, he's a participant he's just he's just in within his social group mm. he is just the poorest of them of them that, that, that yeah. that's the impression that you he's get the poorest person on the rich street yeah but if, yeah. yeah if you're hanging around with those yeah. guys yeah, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna right. look poor aren't you yeah i just want to mention my favorite scene in the whole thing is when Mayer goes and says to all of this is the scene with Shelley Temple where he goes into this auditorium where he's gathered all of his talent and he says we're really not doing very well because of the war we haven't been able to make these pictures etc etc we're all going to need you to reduce your salary and I think it's John Barrymore says you know do it boss and then all these people applaud him and it's like it, it, it makes you sick to your stomach that you know Louis B. Mayer, this really rich person who's not doing anything himself to try and help people, puts on this amazing act to go and um, tell these people and convince them 
to reduce their salaries. And I'm sure some of them were on quite a lot of money, but they, it certainly wasn't all of them because it was all like background dancers and things like that. And then at the end of that scene, Manx says, this isn't even the most disgraceful thing I've seen. Mm. And I think that, that kind of says it all. It's mm. like, really, that was a brilliant scene, but just... Um, well, they, they feared unions, didn't they? Um, and they still do. Uh, yes. Because uh, this was just before the well, WGA. I don't think well, there was a writer's well, guild, was there? No, well, that's alluded to in the plot. It's, oh, ju- it? it's just beginning, isn't ah. it? Because Max invited to be part of it. Oh, yeah. See, I missed that, yeah. clearly. Um, There's a lot of walk and talks. He got that from Aaron Sorkin. Finch yeah. has taken a lot of stuff from other people he's worked with as well, which I really like. Mm. Because you do add all these things in. And walk and talk again feels a bit like a 40s. Yeah. Like rom-com or, or yeah. what have you, like uh, fast, fast talky. Um, well, I think we're basically there. I would ask you because this is mentioned in the film. Who do you think in Mank is the organ grinder and who is the monkey? What do you mean by that? If it just well, that's the organ grinder's parable, isn't it? Yeah, Which is what um, Hurst says. And I think Hurst is saying, you're just my monkey. Because he's, he's referred to, Mank is referred to as a court jester. Yeah. But I think Mank the film is saying, I think you'll find I was the organ grinder when it came to making Citizen Kane. And Orson Welles was my monkey. <laughs> Which is uh, not fair either. <laughs> There's a lot of people vying for power, which is massively in politics and massively a part of Hollywood but that story is mentioned mm. twice and there are monkeys in Citizen Kane and it's called San Simeon like Hearst House it's a very important I don't thread know. If, through if, who's in charge if we're taking Mank in isolation as a film mm. hmm. the insinuation to me is that Mank went off on one mm. Because he was annoyed, because he was jealous, because of whatever, mm. and the film suggests that he that may not be entirely justified, um, and hence Mank will never be the organ grinder. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Fair enough. I, 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 I don't. I, I think it does not portray him as necessarily. But isn't him writing Citizen Kane and not bowing down to all the pressure that he's given throughout the film mm. to stop it? Mm. And he wants to, he says, I want my name on that script. After 10 people have said, including Wells, this is really dangerous, you well, know? He, or well, RKO says this okay. and, M- so and the other throws, studio says this. He throws his one and, quite frankly, the only one he's capable of punch at Hearst, which is to write Citizen Kane. If that's it, and, and but I don't think the film in any, I don't think Mank the film suggests in any way that that's a knockout blow. No, I don't think it is a knockout blow, but I think that it's because of the organ grinder and the monkey tail that Hurst tells him mm. that Mank has to put his name on that screenplay mm. because it's the only way he can stand up against the encroaching political and capitalist Hollywood. Mm. Um, that he until now because he hadn't done anything else before he'd just seen it from afar so I mm. think it's a bold political move but then he wins an Oscar for it and it's all great and that's the end and it's like did we learn anything mm. I don't know that's what I said mank wash your damage mm. you didn't get any mm. so quickly last thing if someone's listened to all of this if they've made it through two hours then um, and they're thinking oh my god this sounds complicated I don't know what these two random people are talking about can you give a bit of a pitch for why someone, anyone should watch Mank who doesn't know anything about Hollywood? 
Do you think it's just an enjoyable film? It's going to be hard, this, because I really think you'll enjoy it more if you've at least watched Citizen Kane. My advice would be watch Citizen Kane first. That's what I did. It ain't two hours out of your life. Just watch it. If you're in the UK, it's on the iPlayer, BBC iPlayer right now. Yeah, I think you can get it in various places. Um, I would say, I, I think you can have a whole different experience not knowing anything. Mm. Because I think knowing everything takes you out a little bit of Mank, which is why I need to watch it again. Because your brain, when you know something, even if you're me, so there's only you who I think knows more, and then me who knows a bit, my brain kept coming out going, who is this person? What is this alluding to? Is there a reference here? How meta is this? And I think if you don't know any of this, it's just a romp about writing a screenplay which well, shouldn't is. be as fun as it is it is but at the same time I also think if you've got no knowledge of what that screenplay ended up becoming and, the, and its significance in film history I don't think you're going to deem that Mank did anything that hurt the Hearst Empire so I think that you, you kind of have to sort of have at least some that'd be massive but just a little bit okay so we loved Mank we mm. think it was great it wasn't perfect but it had multiple layers and said a lot about a lot more things than just Citizen Kane mm. but our advice is watch Citizen Kane well it's only two hours you know what I mean yeah. you just get more out of Mank if you watch Citizen yeah. Kane and enjoy the female characters because there aren't many but they're pretty good in Mank to try and make it on a positive feminist note. David Fincher, he's not our chief <laughs> feminist filmmaker, but you know what? He does quite a lot of good, and for that, I give him some respect. Mm. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Well, that, my friend, is the magic of the movies. <laughs> well done, and thank you for making it to the end of the episode. We'll play the episode out with the soundtrack to Mank and please come back for further content from Beyond Bechdel, including our deep dive analysis into Fincher's greatest film, in my opinion, Gone Girl. See you next time. Bye. That's it.